As I was standing in the hallway with uh, Rabbi Artson, he said, this is like homecoming. So many familiar faces. So Rabbi Artson needs very little introduction to each of us, but it is my opportunity to publicly say how much I love him and what a privilege it is to celebrate with him his new book. As many of you know, Rabbi Artson began his pulpit career here in Orange County, and it feels all the more auspicious for him to do his first major book talk here in Orange County with us. Rabbi Artson was the rabbi at Congregation A Lot for a decade and is currently the dean at the Ziegler Rabbinical School. So those wonderful interns that we're privileged to have at Congregation B'nai Israel are a direct product of Rabbi Artson's mentoring. And what's distinctive about his mentoring for the scores of rabbinical school students in the rabbinic program is his warmth, is his depth of learning, and is his curiosity to try to understand the world around him and integrate it into closeness to God. Robert Artson is prolific. This is your 10th book. 10th book, double digits now, which is to emphasize that he's prolific. But of all the books I know in sharing conversations with my dear friend, this one, he says, comes most from his heart in integration of his years of preparation for his doctoral dissertation, process theology, trying to understand modern science and how we understand the presence of God in the world. No one can describe it better and there's no more important time to describe how can we relate to God in a world in which our minds are open to science and anthropology and our own needs to feel connected to the source of oneness. My privilege to introduce my Chavruta, Rabbi Artson. So it really is a privilege and a pleasure to be here today. And I hope you will indulge me one personal thing. Uh, many of you know um, a pillar of the Orange County Jewish community, Nira Rostin, who is struggling with some health challenges. It's a tradition to dedicate learning to people who we care about. And so I would like to dedicate today's learning to Nira uh, and carry all of our prayers uh, for her well-being and her strength and her courage uh, and her healing. So my wife says that I wrote this book because I didn't want to have psychotherapy. <laughs> and she's generally right. Uh, when my son Jacob was diagnosed with severe autism, my religious life went into a funk. How do you believe in a God who controls everything who knows everything, who is all good, if you're paying attention. Everyone in this room has the example or examples of unjust, relentless suffering, which makes it very hard to believe there's a guy in the sky who's in control and competent. The number one reason, I think, for people to decide that they're not religious is the core teaching that everything happens for a reason and that our job is to just live in the moment and accept it. So if that's your spiritual flavor, then this will be a challenging talk to sit through. But if you're pissed off, at the brutal things you've had to endure. If life can feel cruel and the universe cold and lonely, then we need to talk. Now, it's particularly timely right now. You, you must have heard um, there are a few Jews talking about anything else other than the Pew Forum findings 
um, that show that we are on the quick road to oblivion. I want to highlight one piece of the findings that I find endlessly fascinating. So the largest growing group in the Jewish world is non-religious. Right? They've soared up to 30%, making them the second largest chunk of Jews. Between you and me, I have a feeling that those many of them in the largest group, which is Reform Judaism, would actually quietly admit that they're pretty close to many of those non-religious Jews in their worldview. Right? So what do we do with that? Well, here's some interesting statistics. The non-religious Jews, 15% of them keep kosher. Go figure. 40% of them attend synagogue multiple times during the year. I don't know about you, but I would think the biggest advantage of not being religious. I'm not going to finish that sentence. Obviously, those Jews who say I'm not religious mean something different than what the sociologists were meaning when they said not religious. Here's what I think they mean. I think they mean they're profoundly open to the wonder of being alive. They're open to spirituality. They're open to meaning and beauty and metaphor. What they're not open to is a bunch of rules that make people miserable they're not open to the idea that there's a bully in the sky waiting to clobber them every time they break a rule. And what, since that's what most religious people talk about when they speak publicly about religion, most smart Jews say, I'm not that. So I wrote a book, if you're in that camp. I wrote a book for those of us who wake up in the morning and we want to say thank you for another day but we can't say thank you to the bully in the sky. And so that's what I want us to talk about today. You with me so far? Okay, I'm gonna talk about belief in God. But what I wanna talk about is why you are right to not believe in the God you think you're supposed to. So let me tell you what people tell you you're supposed to believe. They tell us that we're supposed to believe in a God who is all-knowing, all-good, and all-powerful. In addition, that God is eternal, that is outside of space and time, and therefore unchanging. Right? God has to be unchanging in that worldview, because if God is outside of time, change happens within time, and God isn't in time. If God is radically simple, then God can't have component parts that shift around. So there's no changing in the divine. Now, these teachings, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, eternal, radically simple, they come to us, interestingly, not from Jewish sources. Those ideas come from a medieval combination of Plato and Aristotle. So I need to spend a minute telling you why you should ignore them. And then I want to spend the rest of the time talking about the God you can believe in, in fact, the one you do believe in. You just didn't know you had permission to believe in that God in public. <laughs> All-powerful means that God has what percentage of the power? A hundred. And if God has a hundred percent of the power, how much power does everything else have? Zero. You'll find that I don't do trick questions because I'm not smart enough to remember. Zero. So God has 100% of the power, and everything else has 0% of power. I need to ask those of you who know a little physics a science question here. Don't get scared. If you want to exert power on something that has zero resistance, how much power do you need to mobilize on something that has zero resistance? Zero. Zero, none whatsoever. It turns out the notion of all-powerful is a nonsense notion. It means nothing. Power is relational. If it isn't like horse manure spread around, then it can't do anything. 
So you have to, that's from Hello Dolly, by the way, that wasn't my line. <laughs> power has to be distributed and then you can figure out whose power is more effective or who has greater power. But if all power is concentrated in one pole, then there's no power whatsoever. To say that God is all powerful is simply another way of saying there's no such thing as power. And God doesn't have any either. So that's a weird idea. But it's also a weird idea for another reason. Let me play you a 1,500-year-old verbal game about power. Is it possible for Brad Artson to make a weight so heavy that Brad Artson cannot lift it? It's regrettably easy to make such a weight. Is it possible for an all-powerful God to make a weight so heavy that God cannot lift it? No, in either directions. Either God can't make it, in which case there's something God can't do and therefore not all-powerful, or God can make it but can't lift it, in which case there's something God can't do, in which case God is not all-powerful. Now, it turns out this is not a logical problem. This is just a verbal game, but it's a verbal game that shows you again that the notion of all-powerful is an empty concept. It doesn't mean anything. Now, last thing I want to say about it. The biblical Hebrew or rabbinic term for all-powerful is, that's correct. There is no way to say all-powerful in biblical Hebrew or rabbinic Aramaic because it's not a Jewish concept. You can say it in Latin, omnipotent, because it is a Greek and Roman idea, but it's not a Jewish one. Turns out, our God is very powerful, vastly powerful, persuasively powerful, but not all-powerful, meaning there are lots of things that God in the Torah cannot do. Jews don't mind the idea that God isn't all-powerful. We gave that up a while ago privately. Here's the one that Jews really hate. All-knowing means that God knows tomorrow as well as God knows yesterday. There's no past or future for God. It's all laid out. You remember what you had for breakfast this morning? What's the possibility of your changing now what you had for breakfast this morning? Zero. If God knows with that same certainty what you're going to have for breakfast tomorrow, what's the possibility of your deciding to have something different than what God knows you're going to have? Zero. If God is all-knowing, meaning knows the future exactly as God knows the past, not as statistically probable, not as well she's likely to have that whatever, but matter of certainty knows it, then human freedom disappears. In fact, all freedom disappears. Everything has been predetermined. But you know that Judaism rises and falls on the notion of freedom. Not just human freedom, but the cosmos is constantly self-participating, self-choosing how to become, which means what God can know absolutely is everything once it happens. But God cannot know the future absolutely because the future hasn't been decided yet. We haven't cast our vote. So God can't be all-powerful, and God can't be all-knowing. Just to follow up on the last thing I said, the biblical Hebrew or rabbinic term for all-knowing? Exactly right. There isn't one because... Hakol Tzafui is God is able to foretell the future. Already in rabbinic literature, God's capacity known through Platonic thought. But a God who knows the future still gets surprised, right? So let's take a story we just read, so I know you all remember it, the story of Noah, which opens up with God repenting of having made people. Why? Because it turns out we are, I need to use a technical Yiddish term here, stunks. <laughs> 
there is no way to translate that. If you don't know what a shtunk is, just follow my intonation. Right? Human beings are shtunks. I tell my dog all the time, I do not deserve your adulation. The species is not as good as you think it is. And God's surprised by that. So you tell me, the God of the book of Genesis, is that God all-knowing? I don't think so, because that God is appalled by the way human beings turn out. I also am regularly appalled by that. Right? So God is very wise, and there's lots of ways to say that in Hebrew, and God is very smart, and God knows lots of things, and God remembers everything that can be remembered, but that's not omniscient. That's not all-knowing. Last of the three omnis is all-good, omnibenevolent. Now here I will save you a torturous road and I will just tell you there is in fact lots of ways to say that in Biblical Hebrew. Kile olam chasdo, right? God says the universe is tov me'od, right? God loves us with an ahava rabah, with a great love, with ahavat olam, with an eternal love, right? God's goodness is constant in all frames of reference. And that's what I realized in struggling with my son's autism that we have sold God's goodness short in order to shore up God's power. And in doing that, we betray the people who suffer and we betray God too. And we do it because of Greek metaphysics which are no longer valid. So now, a brief physics lesson from the rabbi. For Aristotle, the big challenge that he faced was all matters boil down to four elements. Remember what those four elements are? Earth, water, air, fire, right? Fabulous group. So earth, wind, fire, water. Two of them, if you leave them alone, will settle at a high point, that is to say, air and fire. Two of them, if you leave them alone, will just keep falling down lower and lower, water and earth. Right? All matter naturally wants to settle into a place of rest. Right? I'll give you a thought experiment to demonstrate that. Let's imagine an infinitely long bowling alley. And I am going to take this imaginary bowling ball and I'm going to roll it down the alley. Now what makes it a thought experiment is there are no things on the side to stop the ball from wandering off from one side to the other. If this were actual bowling and me holding the bowling ball, we would need one of those things or this it wouldn't work. But let's imagine that I take the bowling ball and I roll it down the alley and it stays on the center. What happens to it eventually? It stops. Aristotle notices that and he said the reason it stops is that bowling balls want to come to a state of rest as does everything in the universe. So what you need to explain is how is it that everything is in motion? The big problem for ancient and medieval physics is motion. How are things moving when naturally they should be standing still? The answer that he gives, and it's a brilliant answer although wrong, is that things move because something prior to it puts it into motion. Right? I put energy into the bowling ball and it moves until it has used up the energy I put in it. And then it comes to a state of rest. So anytime you see anything in the world moving, what you know about it is that something previous to it put energy into it. Okay, what put energy into that thing so that it could put energy into this thing? Something previous to that. And what put energy into that? Something previous to that. And you start moving backwards in time until you have to start with something that puts into motion but itself is unmoved. Why does that first thing have to be unmoved? Because otherwise, Something had to put it into motion. So the first thing has to be an unmoved mover. That should sound familiar. That's what Western theology calls God, unmoved mover. So there you have a God who is radically simple, outside of space and time, all powerful, can't move. 
But here's the news, folks. For the last hundred years, physics has told us that it is simply untrue that everything naturally comes to a state of rest. That's not true out in the universe. Things can move eternally so long as there's no resistance. In fact, they do move eternally because there isn't resistance. That's one of the cool things about space. Right? So what needs to be explained in modern physics is not motion, but change. What causes something to speed up or slow down? What causes it to shift directions? That's what needs explanation. And so that's what physics has been working on for the last century. And that means we don't need an unmoved mover. It turns out that the oneness that pervades the universe is better described as the most moved mover. That everything is in a constant state of relationship and dynamism, and that's true of the divine as well. So now let me shift to a different way of thinking about God. Instead of thinking of God as up there, out there, separate from us, radically different, never changing and in control of everything, which makes that God, let's be honest for a minute, into a monster. A monster. Right? It's not just teenagers who don't want to be spied on in their private moments. Right? Um, instead of that, what if we think of God as the one who is making possible everything in creation to connect to everything else? God is what links us to the rest of creation, and God is the one who is constantly inviting us towards novelty and change and connection. Let me say a word about that. If you used a scientifically precise oven with scientifically precise measurements for everything in the recipe, you would make exactly the same cookies time after time after time. The rigorous application of the same rules to the same material would produce sameness endlessly. But we live in a universe which has been applying the same rules since the very first instant of the Big Bang, and yet this universe is constantly producing new things. This universe, starting out with just hydrogen and helium, produced the rest of the table of the elements by stars exploding their guts out into space and then planets churning that exploded material and cooking it up and ripping it apart and remixing it. And on one particular area of the solar system, there was a star of just right heat and size surrounded by a cloud of dust with just the right, I don't know, mass, size, that it started to move in a circle around that great big sun, which was actually given other suns not so great and big. And that was good for us. And on that third rock from the sun, it turns out it was a unique planet in that it was constantly churning. It was not a planet in which the heavier elements stayed at the bottom and the lighter elements rose to the top. This is a planet in which things are always mixing, which means the surface of the planet is warm and some of those important elements that are at the core make it up to the surface. It's also an extraordinary planet because at some point in its early history, it got hit by a large enough asteroid that a chunk of it ripped out and started to orbit around it. We call that chunk the moon. And because of the moon, our planet doesn't wobble as it turns. It turns in an even way, which means to say we have reliable temperatures and reliable seasons because of a moon. If we didn't have that, we would not have those things. Right? Coincidence after coincidence, but everything fell in just the right way so that at some point some of the energy, some of the matter on this planet gained self-awareness and started to mobilize for its own protection, its own perpetuation. And some of that self-awareness, that responding to stimulus, at some point became conscious awareness. 
and that conscious awareness at some point emerged into self-conscious awareness. But it's not like the universe was dead and all of a sudden in the midst of deadness there's some living thing. It is to say the whole universe is permeated by experience. The simplest electron moves in response to the insertion of another electron. There is no inert matter. Matter is all of it responding to each other. Now, this view, unlike the other view, the view that says, no, God is timeless, eternal, out there, up in the sky, that view has a problem with what science has told us. But what I've just told you is a religious way of telling you relativity theory or quantum physics, a universe in which everything is descended from everything else, in which everything is related to everything else, and God is not separate from the cosmos, but rather permeates it and invites us towards better choices. Rather than thinking of God as the eternal one who imposes rules and punishes us, I want to offer a radically different way of thinking. So for that, I want to refer to my car. Several years ago, about three years ago, I bought a new car. Cars have changed a lot in the last 15 years. They now come with a woman who is just under the dashboard. <laughs> God may not be all-knowing, but she is wicked smart. <laughs> She told me how to drive here today. <laughs> and that's without ever having been here. So that shows how smart she is. Now, this, this woman, I call her Glynis because her accent, I think, is probably South African, but I can't really tell. Glynis, you tell her where you're going, and then she says, when you get to the corner, take a right. What happens if, for reasons of your own human perfidy, your own jealousy or insecurity or anger or whatever, you don't listen to her and you don't turn right at the corner. She recalculates. She says, okay, I gave you the optimal tool for getting to your goal. You, in your freedom, chose not to exercise that optimal choice. I now integrate your choice into where you are now, and based on where you are now, here's the next optimal choice for you. That's exactly how I picture God. I don't think God watches us make our choices, and then when we don't do what God optimally offers us, says, that's it, you're going to burn in hell forever, sucker. I think God says the divine equivalent of recalculating. I still love you. I'm going to still help you get to that optimal goal. And now here's how to do it. And God is always at each instant creating us again with our most recent choice, now a permanent part of who we are. And then God says in that moment, okay, now here's the optimal choice. What makes a choice optimal? It's optimal if it increases your capacity to enter into relationship, if it increases your ability to engage in experience, if it increases your love and your compassion and justice. Those are the five criteria for something to be the optimal choice, the lure that God holds out for us. And God never stops offering us that choice. God's love is not coercive. God's power is not coercive, it is persuasive. And God is trusting all of creation, hence vulnerable. The idea that God is permanently unaffected by what we do, that in classical theology is called impassable. Right? That God is impassable. God doesn't change based on our choices. I was talking to a man who is now going through his fourth divorce. His fourth wife walked out on him as did the three before her. Warning to any of you who are considering being number five. <laughs> he said to me, Rabbi, this time I know as a matter of certainty it's not my fault because I haven't changed a bit since the day she met me. 
You can't be in a relationship if you're not vulnerable to change. And the Torah reminds us that the primary metaphor for God's relationship to us is relationship. God is in covenant with the Jewish people, with all humanity, with all nature. So a God who is in covenant is a vulnerable God, is a changing God, is a dynamic God. Now let me close with two observations and then I'm sure you have things you wanna say. When I first taught this, I taught this actually at an Orange County retreat uh, that you were kind enough to have me at years ago. You've had 150 speakers, 149 of the best speakers in the Jewish world, and one who wears good ties. <laughs> so um, my son Jacob, some of you know, he's now 21, um, has suffered with severe autism from the time he was two. So Jacob can hear through walls, as many autistic kids can. And so while we were in that room, and I was giving more or less this talk, he was outside in the courtyard because he couldn't stand sitting still. And when I finished talking, the door swung open in the back, and there was my son who walked in, and he communicates by typing. And he typed, Abba, this means I don't have to be angry at God anymore. Smart kid, right? The God of classic theology gave you your cancer, allowed your loved one to get hit by a bus, made the Holocaust happen, had to. God has all the power, can tell what's coming, and knows everything and is in control. So if it happens, God made it happen or God let it happen, which is the same thing. But what about a God who cannot break the rules? A God who trusts the universe enough to invite it into better choices. A God who takes a risk and says, I will enter into relationship the only way you can, which is with mutual respect. Where I'm vulnerable, you can make bad choices and there's nothing I can do about it except continue to hold out to you the better choice. But if you ignore me, you will ignore me, and then we will all pay the consequences for that. My son at age, I don't know, he was eight at the time, nine, he understood that this new theology allows us to recognize that in our suffering, God suffers with us, and that God remains our ally throughout every experience, always with us, always opening the door to hope, to breakthroughs, to new insights, new techniques, but God works in and with and through us. It's not magic. It's not an insurance policy. Now, some people don't like this because that means we live in a world in which if we mess it up, there is no one to clean up after us. And there are people who would rather live in a fairy tale story they know is false than live in a world in which they have to grow up. It turns out most of humanity wants to stay in Neverland. But if you're ready to be a grown-up with me, if you're ready to live with a God who inspires you to be your best, who is self-transcendent and therefore you can be self-transcendent, then this is a pathway for you. The second thing my son said, which I again thought was astonishing, he really heard the talk, not only did he say, well, God isn't my enemy anymore. God can help me out. He said, so what I need to do is I need to listen for the lure. I need to listen for that optimal choice that I already have in my heart. But it's drowned out by all the other voices that are clamoring for our attention our loneliness, our feeling unappreciated, our feeling abandoned, our sense of being vulnerable or threatened or angry or hungry or whatever, we hear all those other voices and we say, I know what I ought to do, but I'm not gonna do it. So when Jacob had autistic meltdowns, which he did a lot, I wouldn't tell him what the solution was. I would sit with him with the typing board and I would say, and he would say, we're waiting for me to hear the lure. And I would say, yeah, because the God I have met 
is everywhere and in all of us. We are marinating in God. And that means all you need to make the next optimal choice is to clear away the clutter and listen with your heart. Now there are tools for helping you clear away the clutter. Torah study is a great such tool. Prayer is a great such tool. Meditation, dance, eating well, treating yourself well, being with people you love, realizing you do not have time to be with people you don't. Right? There are lots of tools we can use to help amplify what we already know to be true. But at the end, that's made me a different rabbi. Some of you knew me when I was a young rabbi and had all the answers. And in those days, people would come to me for counseling and I would listen long enough to tell them what their solution was. You can imagine how well that worked. <laughs> now when people come to me for rabbinic counseling, I help them listen well enough until they hear what they already know. That works a lot better. So the last, last thing I want to say, and then I will open it up to you, I want to say a word about the system of mitzvot, of commandments, and of Jewish practice. Because obviously, if there's a guy up there and he's in control and he can punish us, that happens to be a superb motivation for observance. It doesn't make you feel good a lot of the time, but at least it keeps you doing things. What if there isn't such a guy up there? There is no bully in the sky anymore. All there is is a universe of love, and you have the capacity to be part of it. So here I just want to remind you that the most important obligations in your life, the ones that have behavioral consequences, emerge not from fear but from love. The minute the Soviet Union fell, all the states that had been part of their empire broke away because fear only works so long as there's coercion. I just celebrated my 30th anniversary with Alana. And there are a whole lot of things I do each and every day because it pleases her. And it's not because she's the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe. She actually is all-knowing. <laughs> and she's a federal prosecutor, so she is very powerful. But that's not why I put the tube back on my toothpaste. It's not why I don't put the shoes on the bed. It's not why I clean out the recycling every day. It's not all those countless things. I do them because I love her. And because I love her and because we are in an intimate relationship, it makes me happy when she's happy. So I seek opportunities to multiply her happiness. Turns out that the Hebrew word mitzvah means command. But the Hasidim recognized that the Aramaic word tzavta, which is the same roots, means connection. American Jews don't believe that God commands us. We just don't. But when you light Shabbos candles, don't you feel a connection? When you sit at a Seder, don't you feel a connection? When you sit at the bar mitzvah of some kid who you love, even if you don't believe the words the kid reads, don't you cry because you feel a connection? That's what we mean by mitzvah. We mean these extraordinary Jewish tools that connect us to the ones who've gone before us and the ones who will come after us and connect us to the one who makes connection possible. Okay, I think I've said a lot. I'm happy now to enter into conversation. Anything you would like to say, I want to invite you to avoid long speeches um, because you have to live with each other after I leave. <laughs> yeah. I don't mention conscience. What do you want me to do with that? Conscience is what I was referring to when I used the term the lure. Right? That inner light that lets you know what the optimal choice is, that's conscious. 
Okay? So it's very present. I don't use that word. That's true. That's a Kantian word. I'm not a big Kantian. Yes?
So for me, the language that captures the mindful love of the universe is God. But here's what I want to caution. I think a lot of people, when they say they don't believe in God, mean they don't believe in a Superman comic book figure. Well, I don't believe in that either. Right? So if what you mean by God is if I only pray hard enough, then my father's cancer will go away. Well, I think you're talking Superman here. I don't think you're talking God. Right? So, so if that's what believing in God means, then I'm an atheist too. But I think what they need to be told is, look, there's a third century way of talking about God, and there's a 21st century way of talking about God. And nobody would say, I don't believe in biology because of what Roman physicians did. Right? So why would we not expect religion, which is also a human cultural creation, to develop over time and to change? It builds on a core but it continues to integrate new wisdom, which makes sense if you think that God is actually present among us. We have to be harvesting new insights, otherwise God is dead. So what I would say to them is tell them what it is you love about God and what God brings into your life. And if they get those things from some other way, then great. Your job is not to stop them from being humanist, and their job isn't to stop you from being religious. Your job is to help them be the best them they can be, and their job is to help you be the best you you can be. Thank you, that's helpful. You're welcome. We're gonna go around there, sir. Two, uh, two other concepts Necessity. You see, 
I see that what you're asking is a question that makes sense within Platonic philosophy. But within process metaphysics, there's no such thing as essential. Everything is and everything interacts. So God always is present and available to those who are willing to turn to God. Right? Sometimes we don't let ourselves avail ourselves of God's assistance. But God's assistance doesn't come from outside. It's not like I say, God, please take care of this problem, and then the committee meeting disappears. Right? What actually happens for me, I have a prayer stand in my home, somewhat like this, without a microphone. Um, and after I create a space in myself by saying the required prayers, then I stand in silence. And I wait for God to help clarify what I should do. And what's amazing to me, I think Jews are always waiting for God's response. And, and we keep thinking God isn't answering us, when in fact God is panting and out of breath and running to try to keep up with us. But the minute we finish saying the words in the book, we close the book and we go to Kiddush. Right? So God's just about to give us the answer. But we're out the door. So my prayer life includes time to listen, not with this, but with this. Um, and when I do that, I'm always astonished how often the universe answers me, not always with words, but with intuition. And that, I believe, is the divine working within us. Two more. Yes, sir. still alive. <laughs> there are many places of similarity between some of my conclusions and some of Mordechai Kaplan's, who I venerate. He made a couple bad choices, in my opinion. Uh, he knew about Whitehead. He quotes Whitehead. Whitehead appears in footnotes in some of his writings. But Kaplan decided to stand on the pragmatists. The pragmatists taught that only things that can be measured are really real. If you can't verify it or falsify it, if it doesn't have an experiential difference, then it isn't real at all. So for Kaplan, what he meant by a Judaism with no supernatural is the universe is a great big machine. Now he changed over time. By toward the end of his life, he was talking about transnaturalism. And process. And process. So he had already, Whitehead had creeped in by the end but the early Kaplan, the famous Kaplan, the Kaplan of Judaism and Civilization, the universe is a great dead box. And in it, we make meaning. And so you never know, how is Kaplan's God doing anything? What is Kaplan's God doing, other than the power that makes for salvation? But don't ask me how. Um, and that's why I think it never caught on. Because Jews need to have answers for how does this work as a system? Plug that into the universe. And where Whitehead was brilliant is Whitehead engages in metaphysical speculation that answers those questions. So it's not just universe here, empty black box here, output is ethics. Um, so the last thing I need to say is that notice that based on what I've said here, and you'll catch this in the book if you read it, right, I reject the Newtonian idea that matter is dead. There's absolutely no evidence for that. Right? There is no evidence for that. And, and frankly, it creates the biggest intellectual problem in science today. The biggest intellectual problem is if matter is completely inert and completely what we would call dead, how do you account for consciousness among that 1% of the elements that we are? Right? That's what drove Descartes to have a soul. Right? Kaplan is saddled with that problem. But Whitehead isn't, because Whitehead says, look, we ourselves are products of nature, and we are the only part of nature we know from the inside. So we know from us, I can describe you in third-person terms, hot to touch, cold to touch, big, small, solid, soft, whatever. I can describe you in those objective terms, 
But I know, being a human being, that I also have an internal life that you can't measure. And just because you can't measure it doesn't mean it's not real. In fact, my most real experiences are precisely those things you can't measure. Why would we not assume, if we're part of nature, that that's part of nature too? So I'm not here suggesting that a snail thinks about things the way I do. But a snail does have the self-agency, the self-determination appropriate to a snail. And if you go further down, bacteria have self-determination and self-awareness appropriate to bacteria. And Whitehead's claim, and I believe it's right, is that that's true for molecules and electrons too. They have the appropriate self-awareness of an electron which is radically continuous, which means that consciousness doesn't just suddenly explode out amidst dead matter. It means it's a gradual evolution that blossoms into self-awareness. In that regard, I'm very different than Kaplan, but I think if Kaplan were alive today, he would have been open to a couple friendly amendments. Last question. Yes, ma'am. So, um, recognizing that there are several congregational rabbis in the room, <laughs> I always refer to questions like this as, here, Rabbi, I've pulled the pin on this hand grenade. Hold it for a while. Um, so, one of the great blessings in my life is that my mom's an atheist, which means I don't have any bad religious school to clear out. I don't have any oppressive rabbi to get rid of in my head, because there weren't any, right? So I discovered God as an adult. And I discovered God through the writings of Franz Rosenzweig and through a traditional egalitarian minion at Harvard, which sang everything and was lay-led and had people who gave sermons who weren't rabbis most of the time. They're just really smart people. So I didn't grow up with a religion that was stultified, formalized, insulting to one's intelligence or one's ethical sensibilities, uh, in which we do things because we've always done them, all of those things that some people perceive in some synagogues. Um, I have a couple thoughts. Truthfully, the best thing we could do for Jewish life would be to shut down all the synagogues for 100 years. If we did that, people would realize that the home has to be the primary avenue for Jewish identity. And then when we reopen the shuls 100 years from now, they would realize that all the shul can do is help them in that endeavor. But it can't replace them. You cannot drop off your kid in a synagogue and expect them to get Jewish. Right? Um, so what I want you to do is own your own identity. Now that's a heavy burden. Start by reading the book. Right? Because the book will give you a roadmap. I will tell you one other thing. You're going to have Ron Wilson come here and talk about relational Judaism. It's a magnificent book. And in his book, he says this theology is the theology of that agenda. So they go together. Right? I think you have a lot of allies. There are some rabbis in this room who I know are quite sympathetic. So talk to them about what it is you need and don't really take no for an answer. But the last thing I want to say is when my daughter turned 13, I gave the shortest bar mitzvah speech in the history of the Jewish people. I said to her, Shira, I love you too much to put it into words, so I'm not going to try. But I want you to know I love you more than I can say. 
I said, the second thing I want you to know is that being Jewish is the greatest honor you will never earn. And I don't need you to be the kind of Jew I am, but I need you to think it's important. That was the whole talk. Um, I think you have to have permission to be the kind of Jew you are and to own that as authentic. We don't have a pope. There's no one who can tell you what's right or wrong Jewish if it's your choice and you have a community to help live it. And then you need to give your kids that permission too. But here's what I believe. I believe that all human beings have deep spiritual needs. Needs to live in an integrated cosmos, needs to make sense of everything, need to locate themselves among people and in the world, need for an ethical path in life, need to express joy and surprise and wonder. Synagogues can be great places for that, and you can help shield them from the ways that other parents may not buy into that. I think it's doable. I know people who are doing it even in Orange County. So don't give up and use the rabbi and the cantor and some of the lay people there as your allies in that fight, but don't limit your Judaism to the synagogue. The, the great unspoken secret is that Judaism was never a synagogue-based religion, it was a study-based religion, right? You are allowed to leave a house of prayer to go to a house of study. You are not allowed to leave a house of study to go to a house of prayer. The higher value is study, and the great thing about study is it's open-ended. Come as you are, say what you want to say, every question is welcome here, every answer has its own inner integrity. So I also want to invite us all to move from formalized worship as our core Jewish act to engaged emotional learning as our core Jewish act. Thank you very much.